Smeagol from Middle Earth. This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome, Mist. <laughs> Coming to you from the Doctor Who podcast security kitchen, it's another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. In this episode, we'll be reviewing the recent release of the William Hartnell story, The Ark, on DVD, having a bit of a chat about the upcoming Christmas special, Children in Need special, oh my goodness, Doctor Who conventions, and also a little bit of Big Finish audio. My God, how exciting. Yes, hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. And once again, the DWP curse has struck and there's only two of us here. Trev joins me all the way from Australia. Hello, Trev. And hello, James. Good to have you back after your uh, impromptu week off. Yes, indeed. It was uh, it was one of those weeks when you just didn't want anything bad to happen. And unfortunately, my wife was getting worse and worse with her. Uh, well, she said she caught my man flu, but all of a sudden it got much more serious in her mind when she had it. <laughs> and I, despite me telling her that man flu is the most serious version of flu that exists. But anyway, uh, but yes, it's, it's good to be back. But it's not so normal for us, unfortunately, in further evidence that Trev, Tom and I are actually different incarnations of the same person that can never meet for fear of Blinovich applying and the whole camper van exploding. Tom is not here. Yes, and the only question that remains for me, is Tom a later regeneration or an earlier regeneration of us two? Well, I think he's clearly got to be a later incarnation because, you know, senility normally kicks in towards the end of one's life, Trevor. (laughs) 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 No, not at all, Tom. Tom, we miss you. We always miss you. We don't... uh... We're not able to have anywhere near as an informed or as fast-moving debate uh, without you, unfortunately. But yeah, it was really interesting listening to the pair of you, uh, well, argue once again. Can't leave you alone for five minutes and the pair of you I know, at it. I know. Yeah, leave Tom just... and me in the same room and there'll be an argument ensuing within seconds, as is evidenced <laughs> by our impromptu geek out last week. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that so many of our listeners enjoyed it too because we've uh, received so much spirited feedback based on our... Um, spirited discussion in last week's episode and thank you very much for that everyone thank you yeah it was certainly good to listen to put it that way and once again i was joining in even though i didn't have a microphone in front of me (laughs) but uh, yeah it always seems that you have these most interesting debates when when i'm not there but of course that was something that by necessity had to be completely unplanned um because we were going to be discussing liz sladen and series five of the sarah jane adventures as you said, and we're now going to be discussing that, well, we hope to be discussing it next week when the three of us are back in the camper van. But for the meantime, there's been a lot going on in the Doctor Who universe, both uh, in official announcements for upcoming stories and and conventions and movie news, and it would be remiss of us if we didn't have a little bit of a chat about uh, all this stuff that's been happening since last week. My goodness. Mm. So let's start with the official Doctor Who convention. Well, it's certainly news that has broken, I, I think, in the last week since we've recorded definitely here in the camper van that uh, the, there's going to be an official Doctor Who convention happening in Cardiff in March next year, the 24th and the 25th of March, 2012? Yes. Well, before we pass any kind of opinion on this, let's go through the facts. What is this convention actually offering you? Well, it's going to be held at the Millennium Centre in Cardiff. And that's been used as a location in at least two episodes that I can think of. I think that's The Girl Who Waited and the other one. I'm trying to remember. What was it now? Was it the the Mark Gatiss one where he turned into a big um, crab creature Oh, the Lazarus Experiment. That wasn't the one I was thinking of, actually. It was New Earth. It was the hospital in New Earth. It may well have been others as well, but those are just the two that I I can think of. It's going to be the same program each day, although so I'm, I'm certain some people will try and buy tickets for both days, but you're not going to be getting anything new by going the Saturday and the Sunday. 
What's going to be there? Well, Matt Smith has been confirmed and Stephen Moffat has been confirmed. And lots of other cast members or crew members are going to be there as well. Danny Hargreaves, Michael Pickwood, Marcus Wilson and the Millennium FX team. So I'm assuming that's going to be Neil Gorton and company. So, yeah, it's it's a really high billing, uh, if you like. It's very, very high status. So I think that is, that's very good. In terms of what's actually going to be going on there... Information is a little bit scant and of course Doctor Who fans always think of conventions in terms of unofficial fan run ones, uh, even to a degree Trevor, the ones that we've been to in, uh, in Los Angeles mm. and I don't think this is going to have any comparison or bear any relation at all to Gallifrey. I think it's going to be a much more structured thing. Oh, it's going, definitely. Yes. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame really because I love the informality of, uh, of Gallifrey and I think crowds are going to be moved around uh, in between you know almost they're not panels because they're not really doing panels they're doing Q&A but I have a feeling it's just going to be you know a group of people in a room um, and it will be a performance as opposed to you know an interactive discussion um, but again I'm certain more of this will become clear nearer the time. Um, autographs and photo opportunities are going to be there as well. There's going to be a chance to get up close and personal with some of the costumes and props, which of course is something you don't generally get in fan-run conventions. And, you know, it's it's very, very high profile. Um, and as with all of the things the BBC have organised in the past. I'm thinking of Doctor Who Live, the Doctor Who experience and so on. I'm sure it will be of an extremely high quality and it'll be an enjoyable day out. But, <laughs> I've got to go but, and I'm even going to jump in here before you've going to give an opinion here, Trevor. £99 a ticket for one day. No, no matter how good the event is, that's too much money in my book. Yeah, that's that's good you've mentioned that, James, because being here in Australia, I had to do the translation, and that works out to about $220, $230 Australian. Mm. And that's just for one day. Now, that is a very, very expensive day. And and I was reading a lot about the Doctor Who convention. And, and for any of our Australian listeners who've been to um, a, a similar event here in Australia, which is a more general sci-fi fantasy convention called Supernova, now, I, I went to that with my two kids a few weeks ago. Now, that cost me $30 Australian, and my two children were free because they were under 12. Now, they had access to everything that was going on there. There were Q&A sessions. They had the guy from Back to the Future, Christopher Lloyd. They had a few of the Lord of the Rings stars. And it seems like the Doctor Convention is going to be very similar, that you're going to be wheeled into a room, that you'll get the opportunity to, to listen to Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat and, you know, you, you may be lucky enough to, you know, to be picked to ask a question to them during the sessions. And, yeah, I, I just can't help think that there's a major disparity between the $30 I spent for three people and the £99 that you guys have to spend for one person. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, it's going to have to be something pretty spectacular because I think Supernova... Um, certainly for me in Australia, which has been all over Australia. In fact, it's still going at the moment. Compared to the Doctor Who convention, you guys are going to be getting in Cardiff. They seem very similar, except for the um, except for the ticket prices. Well, interesting. I mean, I think it's going to be considerably more than one person. I think you know Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat alone. I think are part of the reason why the entry fee is so high. But let me let me just ask you a question. Coming off of the supernova discussion, there. I mean, how much would you be prepared to pay? If, for instance, you had a Doctor Who convention that Stephen Moffat and Matt Smith were guaranteed to attend in Australia. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because um, here in Australia we're a little bit more starved because we're so geographically isolated that um, when we do get a major guest over here, um, fans leap upon it. Hmm. But I, 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 th I think it would be unfair for me to compare an Australian's expectations for um, a Doctor Who fan compared to someone in the U of K because oh, you guys no, get yeah. I'm, I'm no, but, but, no, but I mean you you guys get comparatively better access to those sort of stars than we do. So for me over here, I probably would pay I don't know one hundred and fifty dollars Australian to hmm. go and listen to Matt Smith see the costumes, um, you know, do do those sort of things. So, it, so that's it's probably about a little 
60 quid i think probably 60, 60 or there, yeah. 60 yeah. quid roughly i mean so for but i i think that's a bit unfair for me to compare the two because um, yeah I, I see what you mean yeah i think it's vastly different circumstances the uk and australia and so on but i, I i'm just interested is to to find out what people around the world actually think is a reasonable price i mean uh, we've got a massive listener base in america so i'll be particularly interested uh, in hearing from american fans of the show if matt smith and if Stephen moffat were going to be coming to your hometown along with the whole doctor who entourage there is going to be a bit of a circus here how much money would you pay how much money would you be prepared to pay from what is going to be a nine till five event and that's it. And that's not including travel. It's not including food. It's not including taking any leave, you know, <laughs> from work the day before. What do you think is a reasonable price? Um, I, I would say that if this was priced at 45 quid, 45, 50 pounds, based on the number of people they're allowing in, is going to be a maximum of 3,000 people coming for the entire weekend, 1,500 a day, then the BBC are going to make a significant sum of money from this uh, because autographs now this is where it really gets interesting the autographs are, are 25 pounds each on top of, of your entry ticket so in the same way that you know when you buy your ticket again at Gallifrey which I've already said has absolutely no relation really or no comparison to uh, to the official convention but it's all in you get everything the only thing you need to pay for on top of that is perhaps sponsored guest autographs which you're looking at about between five and six pounds for you know it, it's this is a huge leap from what we as fans are used to whilst I'm still very much looking forward to it and I think it will be a fantastic event for those individuals prepared to fork out uh, and go i still can't see how this qualifies as value for money in my book and yeah no. i'm not going to be attending purely well i'm not even going to apply for tickets there may be no tickets left uh, by I, now anyway it's supposed but... to be fair um uh, stephen moffat in the last 24 hours has announced um that his particular signing session will be part of the entry fee oh, so right. it's okay. um, um it's just something i noticed on the uh, doctor who news page today that um, I, I think they have responded to very similar criticism that you voiced, James, that um, perhaps people don't have the money to spend for the admission plus $25 a pop for um, autographs. Now, it, it would be good if they could then extend that to, I suppose, what people will be going there for, people like Matt Smith, you know, whether Karen Gillan attends, you know, you know, whether we get the other stars from the show there. It, mm. it would be fantastic if they could say, right, your admission price gets you in, you might have to wait a little bit, but you know, you can get your bit of memorabilia signed um, by one of the stars of the show as part of your entrance fee. Do you know, I'm sure that's got to be possible because you think about it, there's only, there's only going to be 1,500 people in attendance. So that's, that's, that's about the same number as would attend the most popular day at Gallifrey, when in fact it's considerably less, I think, um, now. But if you queued them up from 9 o'clock, you know, just gave people a particular time to be at a certain place and make certain that you don't get too far behind. There are ways of working that because it's been done before. What I'd love to do is I'd love to put the call out to any people who are attending this convention or are planning to. And if there's anything like an unofficial gathering of fans before, after or during it, let us know here at the Doctor Who Podcast and we'll put the word out. We'll let our listeners know that, hey, if you're going up to Cardiff, stay at this hotel because there's going to be this happening at this time. What a wonderful idea. If we can assist in any way in getting Doctor Who fans talking to each other rather than just lining up in queues. And bear in mind, Trev, this is a UK convention. We like queuing. <laughs> but we queue and we generally don't speak to each other unless it's a case of saying, this queue's moving very slowly. You know, we want to try and generate a bit more camaraderie amongst Doctor Who fans. So yes, by all means, get in touch. If you want to check out the official website, that's www.com dwconvention.com and at the time of recording I'm not certain whether or not there are any tickets left available but certainly all the information that's made available you can find on the website okay before we move on to this week's other hot topic that's the Doctor Who movie um, we're going to announce the winner of a competition that Simon Gurrier launched for us on DWP 108, I believe. The question that Simon set was, Trev, and I will ask you, so you can provide me with the answer. When we first meet Sarah Kingdom in the Daleks' master plan, she kills somebody. 
What's the full name of that character? Um, that would be uh, Brett Vine. I'm sure everyone knows that. I'm sure you're right. Played by, of course, the delectable Nicholas Courtney. And uh, that was the correct answer. The good thing about it was that every single person who entered the competition, all 94 of you, in fact, so it's a really popular competition, uh, got it correct. We didn't get one wrong answer. So, Trev, if you can start the random number generator, please. Eight. Oh, an early, early entry. Number eight is from Donald Marcini. Donald, I hope I'm pronouncing your surname correctly, from Boothwin in PA. Well, that's Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Donald. You've won a copy of Home Truths, which is the first companion chronicle to feature Jean Marsh as Sarah Kingdom. Signed by Simon Gurrier, the author. That will be winging its way to you as you listen to this. Congratulations. Very awesome. Very, very lucky. Very awesome prize. I hope you enjoy that. Well, on to other things. Uh, in, in the last week or two, there has been a, a lot of chatter about this proposed Doctor Who movie that's in the works. Now, anyone who's a long-term fan of Doctor Who is probably rolling their eyes already while they're listening to this and going, oh yeah, Doctor Who movie, as if that'll happen. Um, certainly if you're a fan any older than 25 or 30 years old, um, Doctor Who movies or certainly the idea of a movie seems to come up every 10 years or so hmm. and nothing ever happens. But uh, the, the latest incarnation of rumours has uh, David Yates attached as director. Um, anyone familiar with the Harry Potter movies or certainly the last couple, uh, he, he's been at the helm of those. And um, it's all being done in association with uh, BBC Worldwide Productions and uh, Jane Tranter who is the uh, uh, Vice President of uh, Programming and Production. Yeah, I'll believe it when it happens. <laughs> it's interesting because they're, they're saying that the movie won't follow the continuity of the TV show. Yeah. And while they haven't said it, it almost seems like we're going to be getting a reboot of the series. You know, we may be getting some form of origin story or we, we certainly won't be getting the Doctor we've got on TV appearing no. on the big screen. No, and, and in all fairness, it really doesn't bother me one way or the other and I think the reason for that is because I genuinely do not believe it will get off the ground and I, <laughs> I am I am one of those fans that you described in your intro Trev you know I've, I've heard this rumor on so many occasions and it's almost as if this project or any kind of Doctor Who movie project is cursed uh, that the only ones that have ever come to fruition were the Peter Cushing films back in 1966 I think it was possibly 1967 and you know they, they were completely separate to established TV canon even at the time they went out so fundamentally for me I'm able to ignore those now um, or I could watch them and enjoy them in their own right. I mean, the reason this is all resurfaced is because David Yates gave an interview to Variety magazine, which is actually quite a well-respected publication, and he he made some allusion to the fact that he'd been, you know, working on this project or at least doing some extremely pre 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 production work on it. And of course, you mention that kind of stuff either on Twitter or mm. on any kind of sci-fi website, and the internet just goes boom. And that's what's happened this time. Um, Doctor Who magazine has, has been quite clear in, in, in the tweets that they've been putting out. That's Tom Spilsbury saying that this is just a rumour. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Nothing has been confirmed. If BBC Worldwide came to you tomorrow and said, here's £10 million, Mr James, um, make a Doctor Who film, what would be your... Um, I mean, I don't want a whole story, but what would be your initial premise? What 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 would be your fourteen word pitch? Oh, that's an incredibly interesting question. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I think I'd probably have a go at something which you suggested earlier, and maybe look at the origin of, of, of the Doctor, and that I think is an interesting story that's always been alluded to. 
But again, you know, whether or not fans really want to see that played out on screen so it's no longer in their imaginations, I'm not certain. I, I, I think the Daleks would have to be involved. I think it would be impossible to make a movie that ultimately is supposed to be making money without the biggest money-grabbing monster uh, in the show's history featuring somewhere. I would like to keep it possibly away from Earth, keep it a bit more sci-fi in nature as opposed to an earthbound drama set in space occasionally. And I also think that Margaret from The Apprentice should be cast as a doctor. But aside from that, then I think um, <laughs> I haven't really got much idea. Have, have you? Have you got any idea? Let me throw the question back to you. What would what would your, oh, pitch, okay. your pitch be? Well, I, I, I kind of agree with what you say about an origin story. I, I would be thrilled... Certainly, if they were going to be using this as a movie to launch a like a multi-movie franchise, <laughs> yes. that that I I think pretty much with the the raft of superhero movies we've we've been enjoying for the past ten years, you know, Superman, Batman, Iron Man, Green Lantern, um, you have to devote a certain amount of the first movie to the origin story, and and I love your idea about including the Daleks. It would be a wonderful way to. Um, have the action quotient up, but also find a way of um, showing to an audience what then prompted the Doctor to leave Gallifrey and to roam the universe. So mm. I, I think an origin story by default should be set on Gallifrey. Yeah. But I'm probably slightly disagreeing with you that I think Earth has to have, you know, there has to be some form of um, consequence for Earth in there, you know, to, you know, to ground it for the audience. Earth has to be in peril in some way or, or by default... Um, you know, the universe in general has has to be in um, peril. Uh, but but certainly an, an origin story would be wonderful if they could mesh it in and say, well, this is what prompted the Doctor to steal a Type 40 rickety TARDIS and leave Gallifrey. And then the second movie, my goodness, <laughs> the, the, the skies would be the limit. I mean, like with every superhero movie, um, you know, you're not, um, shackled by having to explain who this character is, mm. you know the the second movie could then um, do whatever they wanted. I I think the possibilities are endless, and I hadn't even given any thought to the notion that it could be a multi-film franchise if if successful. I suppose everything is these days, um, mm. but you know you look at the Twilight films recently. The Harry Potter franchise has got to be probably the most successful franchise ever. Um, barring perhaps the Star Wars one, I, I I don't know, I I really really don't know. I mean I I appreciate there's got to be some kind of um, access point for the audience who are generally uh, human in nature, so they would need to have some investment in the story, so it would need to be tied to Earth somehow. But how how it would work, I I honestly don't know. And it's a kind of question that I think that if I'd have had a week's notice on, I'd have probably come back to you with uh, probably <laughs> a pitch that I could have made uh, to um, to the producers to say, hey, why don't you do this? I think I think the only thing that I'm slightly concerned about, and it is a minor concern, is if they do pr press ahead with this, it becomes incredibly successful and compromises the uh, future. Of the TV show mm, as we know show. it, that yes, that would yes. be the only concern that I have at this moment in time. But in all fairness, it's only a small concern because I don't really believe it's going to happen. Friday night just gone at the time of recording saw Children in Need back on our screens for the for the now annual extravaganza uh, that we uh, we get to watch and fortunately Doctor Who uh, featured once again not as prominently as in previous years but we had a small sketch with a doctor and hmm, yes doing a striptease fundamentally so Trev have you heard, have you had a chance to, to take a look at this specially scripted script I did I did as, as soon as I saw it I I, I dubbed it the uh, Doctor Who nudie run <laughs> um, but I, I I think we've got to take this sort of stuff in the spirit that it's done sure these days we uh, see a lot more flesh on our uh, doctors than we're I suppose traditionally used to but it, it, it's hard to be critical of something like this, really. Um, it was a bit of fun. Um, I had my two children sitting with me next to the laptop because we watched it via YouTube as well. And, you know, they, they, they had a good chuckle about it. They, they thought it was quite funny that, uh, you know, the doctor was losing his clothes and that, you know, people could use the red button to remove, you know, the replacement costume he had on. Um, 
But I, I, I think for me, certainly, what I was most interested in seeing was the um, um, Christmas special trailer, which Matt introduced at the end of his nudie run. And that, 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 that was most interesting for me to, to, you know, to finally see some uh, clips from what we're going to be mm. seeing on Christmas Day. No, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I agree with you fundamentally about the, uh, the stripping preamble thing. You know, it was quite fun. Uh, I sat there, watched it with my wife and she smiled as well. And yeah, it was it was like you say a bit of fluff, and I'm just interested to hear where people try and write that into into canon. No, 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 James. That there there is a difference between stuff like this where we have the Doctor addressing you know the audience basically, you know, pushing through the fourth wall. Yeah. Compared to, um, I think last year's Children in Need was the uh, space slash time thing. No, that was comic um, relief, and that was earlier this year. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I stand corrected. Mm. That that was the comic relief then. So um, I think you really have to try and fit comic relief into canon. And I think some fans have tried to. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, people but, do. People do. They think that's part of um, Series 5. But... but but stuff like this with Children in Need where it's basically, I don't know, it's it's a weird mixture of it's the actor, but it's also the character talking yeah. to the audience. Well, you, it, you, you, you're not you really sure. It. It's, it's breaking the fourth wall entirely. And I, 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 I don't really have a, a major issue with that. I never had a major issue with it when William Hartnell did it at the end of Feast of Stephen. And uh, I know Tom Baker wanted to do it as well, but was uh, not permitted to do so. Um, at the end of Stones of Blood, I think that was a 200 show or something. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, it doesn't bother me at all. My tongue was a little bit in my cheek when I mentioned it, it has to be said. <laughs> uh, but yes, you're right. The real thing to talk about here is the 90 seconds or thereabouts that we get to see of the Christmas special this year, which we now know is going to be called The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe. A lot of forum chatter about this, about people saying, oh, no, Doctor Who being so unoriginal, stealing its origins yet again like it did oh, last really? year. I haven't seen any of that. They, oh. No, there has been a lot of talk on the forums about it. Um, <laughs> I think what people don't understand is Doctor Who has always done it. You know, Doctor Who is, has its roots in basically stealing or homaging ideas from classic science fiction and certainly we'll talk about the arc mm. soon on dvd which certainly has its traditions in uh, referencing uh, classic literature but um i think something the modern era of who does now certainly uh since stephen moffat's come on board is they haven't really been as obvious as sticking the reference in the title that uh, older doctor who i think was a bit more subtle that sure they they stole a lot of stuff but they didn't bother putting it in the title, yeah. like last year was the Christmas Carol. Yeah. This year we have the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. Well, everyone even, knows it. even the Runaway Brides. I mean, it's not overtly Christmassy, but there's a film. There's a Jennifer Aniston film called The Runaway Brides. Yeah, so I, I, I think modern Who's a little less subtle about what it references as as compared to classic Who, but it's it's always been there. So I'm, I, I don't really understand people's being upset about the Doctor no. having a you know a go this Christmas at, at the Narnia story. No, I, I, I don't have a problem with it at all. Um, I think it's an interesting title. The Doctor, I think, clearly is the Doctor. The Widow is probably Amy, given how much Rory has died. And the Wardrobe probably is Rory. So, <laughs> you know, I don't have a problem with Doctor Who paying homage to classic literature i mean i absolutely adored a christmas carol i mean that the title of a show is, is is incidental to me really anyway russell t davis played around with it all the time the doctor's wife you know things like that the doctor's daughter he thoroughly enjoyed doing that and it just gets people talking about the episode a bit more and the fact that this looks like it's going to be based loosely on um the line the witch in a wardrobe you know, we'll wait and see. For me, is it a good story? Is it a good yarn? Um, contrary to what I said, I do hope that uh, the Pons aren't in it. Uh, and looking at the trailer, neither Amy or Rory are. Um, having said that, I know there's been filming reports to the contrary. So we shall have to see. I, I do think this looks interesting in as much as there's loads of big names in this year's special. Uh, Bill Bailey. I, I don't know if Bill Bailey is a, is a big name in Australia. He's probably the biggest name in this special for no, Australians right. because, okay. uh, you know, he's he's done his nature series. He's done various 
um, live comedy DVD releases, and he's been in QI quite a lot. Yeah, um, and before people do start talking about stunt casting, he's an established actor as well. I mean, he was uh, probably most well-known on BBC Two sitcom Black Books over here. Mm -hmm. That was probably about 10 years or so ago. So I'm very much yep. looking forward to what he brings to the show. Claire Skinner, again, another actress famous over here for Outnumbered, and that's that's a sitcom, Trev. Is that something you're familiar with? Um, not me personally. No, it's it's, it's very good, um, and I think this is where she's come to to come to fame, really, uh, as, as the mother of that family, and she um, she plays opposite Hugh Dennis. But Annabella Weir, and I know Tom mentioned her briefly last last week, and what was failed to be mentioned is that Arabella Weir has played the Doctor. In a big finish, uh, in one of the oh, unbound. Really? Yeah, it's a well. Frankly, it's an appalling play. Uh, I'm really not keen on it. But as 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 a very drunk female doctor, uh, Nicholas Briggs plays the previous incarnation of it. But if you want to check that out, then it's called Exile. It's in the Doctor Who Unbound range, and it's about an hour long. It's not one of these two and a half hour jobs, but it is supposed to be a comedy again we've got an all-star cast uh, so i'm looking forward to to seeing how this one plays out and good news for me they fast-tracked it again over here so we're mm. going to be getting it uh, boxing day on boxing day over here in australia so yeah Great awesome stuff. stuff abc good stuff all right well all the way from christmas 2011 all the way back to uh, march 1966 it's time to talk about our DVD release for this episode, the William Hartnell story, The Ark. Well, well, it's just as I said, it's all very, very strange. That is an Indian elephant. <laughs> no, what difference does that make? Well, that's and what I'm group. trying to find out, dear boy. Flowers from America, birds from Africa, a snake from Brazil, and now an elephant from India. Exactly, my dear. It's a jungle incorporating things from all over the world. Yes, you're quite right, my boy. Yes, and on top of everything else, it's a jungle without a sky. The animals went in two by two. Hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> I really like this. I thought it was great. Um, I, I went into the, in, went into this thinking I honestly don't remember much uh, from when I watched it on VHS. I remember that it was pretty much two two-parters stuck together, um, or it was certainly... It was certainly written uh, to be presented in that format, um, but it works very well as a four-parter as well. Yeah, this is a bit of a unique story for me too because uh, uh, Tom and I had a discussion a few weeks ago about stories that are like kind of off your radar, stories that you've never either really seen or never really uh, sourced out. And The Ark is one of those stories for me. And, and I'll be right up front and say the DVD is the first time ever I have watched the arc from the beginning of episode one all the way through to the end of episode four. Yeah. So it, it was a fantastic experience for me because DVD has opened up this story to me. And uh, it, it was just a wonderful watch for me because all I pretty much knew about the story, as you say, James, is that it's um, two stories mashed together. We have a four-part story with a, with a story in the first two episodes and a different but connected story in the last two episodes and it was an absolutely riveting watch for me it, it, it was fascinating to see um you know the way they've used time travel in the story they've used it in a really intelligent way and there's certainly many references in this story to classic literature and uh, you know the references to hg world stories like first men in the moon uh the time machine war of the worlds are very much there if you're familiar with the source material. And it, it was fantastic to see this. I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was okay. I think there are some really good standout moments, but there are some there are some slightly questionable um, choices made, I think, by the production crew. Even at the time, uh, the, the monoid costumes couldn't have been seen as good. And I think in the, in the DVD extras, you've got Peter Purvis saying that he didn't mm. like them from day one. Because uh, fundamentally they look like a man in a costume um, with a ping pong ball in his mouth, and you know they—that that is what they look like. It's like walking carpets, but the whole concept of of this story, as you rightly say, is is based on a number of different H.G. Wells stories, and I think the time traveller is the most obvious one. Uh, but certainly the the cold that Dodo uh, infects 
well, all of the inhabitants of the Ark with eventually is straight from War of the Worlds. There's a degree of Invisible Man as well, mm. uh, with the Refusions mm. being invisible. And certainly, I think the island of Dr. Maru, your Maru, I think is how you say it, just a, an island full of an extremely strange population, really. You know, you know, the Ark for me is an interesting story because, like, we've talked about a lot of its literary influences with H.G. Wells and uh, all that sort of stuff. But then on the other side of the coin, you know, the Ark has, like you say, it's got some terrible costumes from the Monoids. Yeah. You know, Peter Purvis lays into them during one of the extras on the DVD saying how awful they were. Um, some of the performances in all four parts of the story are absolutely dire. You know, they are really, really theatrical. It, it seems like the actors they've got for the performances have just come straight from some Christmas pantomime. I think one of the, one of the few directoral flaws, I think, was the way that the monoids and the humans conversed in episodes one and two, because it does kind of set the nature of the relationship up um, for the entire four-parter, which is where you've got all of the human actors, well, they're all human actors, but all of the guardians waving their arms around, irrespective of who they end up speaking to, and the monoids, particularly in episode four, get more and more animated in terms of doing cartwheels while standing still practically with their arms. It does almost border on the hammy uh, side of things. But that that being said, for me, the performances are just a very, very small part. I did enjoy the whole story. And there's there's a number of things. I mean, I, for me, Dodo is an absolute revelation. I haven't seen many stories uh, featuring that particular companion. And this is only the second story after she was introduced in the massacre uh, beforehand. It's her first full story, basically. Yeah, it's it's her first full story. And despite the fact that she speaks, I think, at one point with a Newcastle accent, another point with a Liverpudlian accent, but the majority of it with a North London accent, um, you know, it didn't didn't really bother me in the slightest. She's a bit spunky. She's got a bit of fight in her. I love the way the first Doctor corrects her grammar and um, asks her what she's doing wearing the stupid clothes. <laughs> which is, uh, I, I couldn't help but I think I did actually guffaw at that when it was on the telly. It was, it was really, really good and I like the combination uh, that I see here between Stephen's, uh, Pete Purvis, Stephen and uh, Jackie Lane's Dodo. But what really amazes me about this era of Doctor Who, I mean, anyone that's familiar with the way Doctor Who was being made, it, this is the third season for Doctor Who, 1965, 1966. I think they must have had a revolving door on the Doctor Who production office because um, certainly uh, when Mission to the Unknown came about, the, the producer changed from Verity Lambert to John Wiles. John Wiles didn't last very long and then Innes Lloyd came on board straight after the arc was produced and um, script editors changed at least two or three times during this season as well. It was an incredibly turbulent time for the, for the production of the show and, and certainly many ideas were um, tabled at the time that, that just never made it to screen. So it's, it's really a wonder that we end up with anything in season three at all. Well, you're right. And I think that's part of the reason why you've got such a set of different stories um, I mean, you look at the massacre beforehand, you know, hugely um, unique, really, in the uh, in the Doctor Who run. You look at the stories in seasons one and two, and there was nothing as innovative as that. The story straight after the arc is the Celestial Toymaker. And again, the first ethereal, surreal kind of story that we get. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that you've got a lot of new people coming into the show, all with their own ideas. And you can look at it as quite a creative and inventive period of Doctor Who or you can look at it as a bit of a mess and you know the stories don't really gel uh, together as well as as well as they should do but it is interesting uh, when you look at the production crew and see what producers did uh, to leave their fingerprints on Doctor Who you know in the same way that you know you look at Philip Hinchcliffe and it's much more obvious it's much more gothic it's much more horror in nature Now, this DVD has probably one of the best extras I've seen in a very long time on any Doctor DVD. It's a mixture of a um, uh, behind-the-scenes of the arc, but it's also a documentary on where Doctor Who was being made at the time, and, and this is the one that features Peter Purvis. 
where they actually go to, I think what's called the, the Riverside Yeah, so Riverside Studios. It's the Riverside Studios in Hammersmith, which still exists. And they go through a wonderful monologue there of explaining how the differences between Riverside Centre and the Lime Grove Studios and how that affected the way Doctor Who was made. And it just put a light on my head that it seems so obvious about how um, there's such a difference between the William Hartnell era where they used to do a lot of jungle scenes and rather larger um, set-type areas, which the Riverside Centre afforded them. But then when Patrick Troughton came on board, they were forced to go back to Lime Grove. And that forced them to really start doing a lot more studio-bound type stories. And even if you look at the first season of Patrick Troughton, pretty much all of them are essentially studio-based stories, stories that are set inside buildings or offices or something like that. But you look at stories like The Ark, which were filmed at the uh, Riverside Centre, and you've got lush jungle settings, you know, very similar to Mission to the Unknown, really showed to me the difference between the way Doctor Who was made then and it, it was made merely one year later. Yeah, I, I think it did show very clearly um, the challenges that the production crew had, even as much as getting the TARDIS prop to the studio. In Lime Grove, they, 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 they could fit it in the lift, but they had to make it smaller than they wanted. But uh, you're quite right. That particular extra, it's 20 minutes extra, that is, is called Riverside Story. It's presented by Matthew Sweets, who I've met, I have to say. He's a very big Doctor Who fan. Oh, um, he interviewed Rob Sherman at, uh, at the launch of one of Rob Sherman's books, probably about three or four months or so ago, and he's also written a couple of big finishes, including one Jago and Lightfoot. And I have to say, I thought he was excellent. His presenting style and interviewing manner is probably the best uh, that I've seen on the DVD extras, and I think he was a, a real find, and it's, it's good that he's doing a, a lot more DVD work now. But uh, but that's not the only really good extra on, on this DVD. Um, you, you've got something called One Hit Wonder, uh, which is a look at uh, Doctor Who monsters that have appeared only once, and, and, and the reasons for them only appearing once. And got some good stuff there from Jacqueline Rayner, who again is a big Finnish writer, and uh, she's done an awful lot of editing as well. Um, she was at one point the official editor, I think, on the BBC book range, and it's interesting to hear her perspective on uh, on, on the Monoids. I mean, I think they're, in general, they're, they're quite complimentary uh, about the creation or the theory or the concept of the Monoids, but I think they're all fairly unanimous in their condemnation of how they actually looked uh, in, in, in the final cut. Uh, the one last thing that we haven't mentioned on the DVD is the final extra called All's Well That Ends Well, which is just taking a look at uh, the influences that we've talked about during this review um, from H.G. Wells and talks about the specific story elements as to how it influenced uh, the arc, which is a very, very good um, extra, it has to be said. I think, again, it's a tenuous link, but I think once once you've got stories that are like 40, 50 years old... Um, it's difficult to get interviews with uh, all of the people involved because so many of them have passed on. So you've got to be a bit more creative in the extra material you deliver. And this is a perfect example of Simon and Thomas Gurrier doing that. And uh, it, it's a really, really good 10-minute uh, look at H.G. Wells' work, in my view. So, but I think this is an example of one of the more uh, vanilla releases for the range. But having said that, there's lots on it that while, you know, there mightn't be a lot of actors from the show surviving anymore that can actually provide interviews, they do supplement what is there with a lot of interesting extras like the H.G. Wells one, like the making of documentary, like the uh, look at uh, Riverside Studios and Lime Grove and stuff like that. So while there mightn't, you know, be a lot there that compared to the you know some of the more, I suppose, bountiful releases... You know, the arc's got a lot there that's of, of real interest for anyone who has an interest in, uh, I suppose, Doctor Who history. Staying firmly in the First Doctor era, we have now something rather special for you. Um, now, a few weeks ago, you may remember, Ian and Michelle took over the microphones, uh, unceremoniously threw Trevor, Tom and me out of the caravan and talked about one of the Big Finish Companion Chronicles, Find and Replace. This time, they've done it again, 
and they've taken a look at a story called The Perpetual Bonds, which I'll leave to them to talk about a bit more. Hi, this is Ian. And this is Michelle, and we are moderators at the Doctor Who Podcast Forum, where we invite you to join us for great discussions with wonderful people. Well, our mission today is to take a look at The Perpetual Bond by Simon Garrier. This is another Big Finish Companion Chronicles, and this one features the first Doctor, uh, and of course it stars Peter Purvis, his companion Stephen Taylor, and introduces Tom Allen as new companion Oliver Harper. Now, this story has the first Doctor and Stephen returning to 1960s London, and they soon discover that everything is not what it seems in the commodities exchange. The Doctor almost snarled at me. I'm saving your life! You blundered in here under false pretenses. You made a distinct threat. Mr. Flowers has galactic law on his side, huh? He can have you obliterated to constituent atoms. But it's more worth his while to let you live. But you can't. You can't! I held the doctor's gaze. I knew he wasn't joking. We'd been clumsy. We'd got ourselves caught. And there was nothing he could do. So, Ian, what did we make of the perpetual bond? The, the intro was great, it was very evocative. The the picture that Oliver's character paints of 60s London was uh, really nice and set the period, set the location really, really well. Unfortunately, I really didn't get on with Peter Purves as a voice actor. I don't know if this is my cultural baggage because I remember him from Blue Peter, but he just didn't work for me as a voice actor. He constantly sounded like he was narrating a documentary rather than a story. He, he does an impression of, of William Hartnell, which, unfortunately, I thought I found Peter's to be a little bit too close to a parody of, of William Hartnell. I, I found that quite jarring. Oh, that's interesting, because I was completely opposite. I really enjoyed Peter Purvis. I thought he was great. Uh, and I enjoyed his first Doctor impression. Felt like William Hartnell was there in the studio. I, I will say I have just recently begun watching some of the TV episodes that feature Stephen, and I'm really growing to like him. I've also enjoyed his work on the Big Finish audios. When it comes to the story itself, uh, as much as I love the performances, as much as I love the sound design, which is always outstanding at Big Finish, there were parts of the story that I had a little bit of trouble with, and it has to do with this idea that these aliens could be taking large numbers of people, abducting them essentially, and sending them off to be sold into to slavery without anybody really noticing in the general population. Uh, at one point, they uh, plan on taking a 1,000 commodities traders from the commodity exchange and sending them away, and they don't seem particularly concerned about any repercussions other than having to recruit and train a new workforce. In fact, I thought there were several points where they've set up a nice setup, but the actual execution of the story as they move forward just didn't hang together for me. They, the aliens just start a gunfight in the middle of the stock exchange. They're supposed to be trying to stand under cover. They're supposed to be sort of stealth. It didn't seem a sensible thing for them to have done. And also, to be honest with you, that the whole concept that what they were doing was completely acceptable under galactic law and this whole contract idea. It's a neat idea to play with, but it just didn't strike me as being at all believable or even remotely believable that the Doctor would, would play along with it and have to sort of play games to get around it. The other thing that I picked up quite strongly, particularly in the second episode, was the sort of political allegory of the Fulgurites as being nasty capitalists, which at first was, it was there, but it was in the background and I didn't have a problem with it. But then in the second episode, they start ranting on about the youth of today with their long hair and how we should make them all work and national service should be good for them. And it just started playing into this really cliche stock trader, banker, uh, which of course is very popular these days because bankers aren't hugely popular right now but I thought that the the analogy became very labored. To turn this back to some of the things that I really like uh, I do want to mention that it explores the relationship between Stephen and the first doctor in the aftermath of having suffered a lot of losses of having lost Katerina, Brett Vian, Sarah Kingdom and as we go into this story uh, Stephen Taylor is a little uncertain about how secure he is with the doctor about whether the doctor would be able to protect him or whether his fate would end up the same as the others and and I liked that slant on it that became an important part of the story and I thought was handled very effectively I thought they wrote very well for Stephen actually I mean he's not a companion I'm particularly familiar with but I thought the 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 dialogue and the 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 thoughts they gave to Stephen really drew out who he was. You got a feeling that he was a man out of time himself. Well, speaking of companions, of course, they introduced a new companion for the first Doctor, Oliver Harper. Harper speaking. Hello? Is anyone there? Oliver, the police! 
The net was closing. Georgie couldn't keep his mouth shut, and the police would be on to me next. No point in running. I'd seen people try. It only made things worse. Any first impressions of this fellow? Uh, I think he struck me as being quite a savvy, intelligent companion. I uh, found him to be quite pleasant and enjoyed his introduction. Uh, one of the major plot points is that he has some sort of secret. I'm interested in him. I'm interested to see how the story plays out. But I'm not waiting with bated breath. Ultimately, with this story, it, I would kind of consider it maybe average rather than one of the great ones. But I, I would s still recommend it. I enjoyed it. Uh, for me, it was slightly below average, I think. The final resolution didn't stack up for me. I, I thought that the way they resolved the story, in fact, most of the second episode was confusing. And the fact that I didn't really enjoy Peter Perv's performance as well. I could have forgiven a weak plot if the performance was great or vice versa, but the combination of the two left me, to be honest, feeling fairly unsatisfied. Ah, well, hopefully next time we'll find one that, that you'll just fall in love with. And we're curious to hear what the listeners have to say. If you've had a chance to listen to any of these audios as well, please remember you can always send in your feedback to feedback at the com, and, and please join us on the forums. We'll be happy to get into conversation with you. There's a wonderful group of folks there. Absolutely. Uh, please come and join the fun. Till next time. Bye now. Well, thanks, Ian. Thanks, Michelle. Once again, another really structured, well-thought-out review and... Uh, Clearly highlights the need for Tom, Trevor and I to up our own game. So we shall do that next week when we are all back together talking about Series 5 of the Sarah Jane Adventures. Trevor, I always ask Tom this and I always end up regretting it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you have anything else interesting and informative to impart to our listeners before we say goodbye? Mm, um... No. James, a pleasure as always, mate. We will see you all next week and uh, we'll Shanghai Tom back in the caravan, I'm sure. So Absolutely. So until next week, see you guys. See you guys. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.